everyone. Welcome back to the Junior Wonks podcast. I'm Jesse. I'm a graduate student in economics. My name is Ben Stevens, and I'm a government affairs professional. Thanks for joining us. It's been a little bit of a break for the podcast. Uh, a little bit unexpectedly, uh, we had we had some some recovery days built in for our second doses, uh, and then I have been busy with final exams, but. Thanks for tuning in today, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about immigration in America. And I guess the impetus for this is the discussions been had in the past couple of weeks about the kind of the quotas that America has in place or had in place from Trump on caps for like refugee and asylum applicants which uh, was like a campaign promise Biden had that he was going to raise those caps and then sort of backed away from that because of some of the big inflows of migrants along the southern border that seemed to be getting like a lot of media traction and things like that. So he sort of shied away from, from fulfilling that promise for a little while there. And there was this kind of I would assume this kind of tug and pull behind the scenes. Uh, and eventually it, it seemed like the critics got to him and he announced, I guess this was a week or two ago now, but that he was going to fulfill that promise and raise the caps from, do you remember the numbers that it was? It was like 15K to 62.5K, something yeah. in that range. Yeah, apparently, just adding a little color to that, I guess allegedly biden had almost like a staff revolt like people just got so pissed at him i mean for good reason it was like dude come on you can't like the one thing we you can't be doing is having like the trump refugee quota like it's come on man and like to put that into perspective and i think you're right i think it was that like 15 to 60 or 65 number um which, which sounds great, I think, until you remember that the U.S. gets, uh, I think last year, last year was almost 200,000 um, asylum applications. It was, it was like 190 something. I looked this up earlier. And so it's really, we're still saying, you know, out of, out of this huge group of very desperate people that are fleeing just the most heinous conditions on earth, war-torn countries, extreme poverty. We're just like, ah, actually, we're just gonna cap that for no reason. Um, so that's, you know, that's why we're here today. Um, do you wanna give any other kind of background here? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, just the situation, obviously it's gotten better recently you know, just in terms of news coverage and the actual flows, but the situation on the Southern border was a quote unquote major crisis, you know, in terms of CNN headline situation. Um, so I think it had a bit more salience then. I feel like since then COVID kind of dying down a lot has obviously been a big deal. <laughs> a lot of other things have just sort of supplanted it for whatever reason i mean it probably for the better for the american people to not get bogged down and that you know republicans bad faith going to the border or whatever 
Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's really the only other major development. I mean, obviously there's always, a you know, there's always people trying to push comprehensive immigration reform, but kind of a bridge building a bridge to nowhere on that one as we'll get into. Yeah. So I think, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a good kind of, where are we, uh, with this? And I think, you know, I guess what we're going to dive into is some of the arguments that are made about restricting the number of asylum seekers, refugees, and immigrants, um, based on kind of economic protectionist arguments, I guess I would call them, um, and and see kind of how much how much water those arguments hold. Um, how much we gone? Yeah, but first, I guess before we do that, I, I mean, as you said, this is kind of a perennial issue in politics. How do you? What's your take on how? kind of the ideological landscape around this issue has changed. I know we've, we've done this kind of like 2016 to 2020 contrast a few times, and I think that's a useful framework for people. So what's your take on that? Uh, I think just in terms of the discourse, how much or how much the salience of the issue specifically from 2016 to 2020, I think I think underpinning the whole backdrop of this discussion is the fact that as America has become more educated, as it's become more diverse, we kind of entered a situation where uh, immigration, well, I, I don't know, it's a little bit difficult to say because you had different dynamics occurring, for example, Reagan being pro-immigration and the business community being very pro-immigration typically to this day. Um, and sort of things of that nature. And you have organized labor very opposed to it in the past. So there's kind of elements of realignment, but um, in terms of 2016 to 2020, I think the biggest change being that pre 2016, there was just a sort of fairly large uh, undercurrent of anti-immigrant sentiment, particularly amongst Republicans and, you know, reactionaries across this country. And they had kind of been, getting repeatedly swatted back. They got Bush, who's obviously pro-immigration, is currently basically lobbying the GOP to do immigration reform. Mitt Romney, who said all sorts of things, but I don't think he's actually in his bones, really. McCain, definitely not super anti-immigrant, um, clearly lying when he said he was. So I think Trump definitely struck a chord, you know, with very sincere hatred of immigrants. Um, and I think that it just hadn't really been an issue that was particularly salient to a major election in a while, or at least definitely not the Obama elections. Immigration was not a factor. So I think it was a pretty big factor in 2016. I think since then, public opinion has shifted against, shifted towards immigrant pro-immigrant stances, mostly through that sort of that uh, crafty political science, that uh, expression of thermostatic public opinion, which I'm sure you're aware of because uh, political scientists talk about it all the time when they get a chance to. Uh, but I think there, you know, there is something real to it where Trump 
being this unpopular dick who was in control of our country, who was super anti-immigrant, I think people just sort of shifted to be more pro-immigrant. Um, obviously, there was still a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment powering him in 2020. But I, I believe it was less of a, a less salient issue in um, 2020 than 2016. I think you could make the case that there were other proxy issues that sort of stood in for it. You know, you know Trump's entire campaign strategy was basically talk about the unrest in 2020 and say there was a incoming race war and that sort of thing. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you think. Maybe that was a little bit too long winded, but I don't know. I, yeah, I think I, I tend to agree with, the kind of broad strokes there you know i think it's also interesting it's a little weird um how i think that fact that you said like like 2008 2012 at least per my recollections and per what i've read about these elections kind of post hoc um it's yeah it doesn't seem like it was as cer certainly not as vitriolic of an issue and, and not really as central either um which it's always funny to me when issues and, and i think it's telling when issues just don't really track what's actually happening like for instance um you know like mexican immigration um peaked like a decade ago um well, probably more at this point more yeah like i think 50, i think it was it would have been like 2006 2007 2008 like you know those years yeah. um so it's 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 weird where like you have and, and it's again it's always like a little suspicious to me when you have the the actual like effect and then a decade later you get you know not not quite a decade but you know this this uh ultra successful populist who is largely running on a nativist you know, anti-immigrant platform. Um, and then you have, you know, like a million think pieces in the New York Times talking about economic anxiety among like yeah. white working class as, as being the driving force behind this. And I, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously this is this is just as speculative as those pieces, but like that, that never really added up to me. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, that's, I, I think, you know, we want to tackle a little bit like how much how much of this is is authentic economic anxiety, um, you know, and how much of it is is really just kind of reactionary xenophobia or or yeah, you know, maybe maybe there's you know you know other factors at play, and we can we can get into that. But I, I think a lot of it is xenophobia and instructive thing to do is to just watch bill clinton's immigration ads and you think oh wow this is like pretty much the exact same as trump's 2016 campaign ads um so i think that's a lot of it yeah i yeah. mean on that specific the economic anxiety piece <laughs> it's never really held water to me i mean i don't think there's an example in the world of a place where the relationship between those things is really one-to-one. -one. 
it just doesn't really seem true to me that it, and that inequality is really correlated with opposition to, you know, immigrants and different sorts of people um, and social reaction. I mean, I think really the biggest issue at the heart of it or the interesting correlation, I believe, is that the sort of major political shift of the Trump years has been the realignment of, you know, adding a lot of uh, educated suburban whites, so to speak, shorthand educated suburban whites and losing, you know, working class, working class white people. And I think if you're just trying to descriptively describe or, well, that's a weird way of phrasing it. If you're trying to describe just as a group, the 10 uh, types of views those people would have, you're dealing with a lot of people who in the case of working class whites probably do have a lot of populist views on economic policy. They just don't, they're not well off. The less money you have, the more left-wing your economic views tend to be. That's, that's well borne out. For example, even low income Republicans tend to agree with many left-wing economic ideas, including minimum wage, taxing the rich, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think a lot of those people also just happen to be very xenophobic. I don't think those things are really correlated, at least in the world we live in. I would say there's not a strong correlation between those two things specifically. I think that the reason that there's a correlation is just the kinds of people who have shifted sides politically just tend to have those viewpoints. Whereas the people, you know, these Bush Republicans who became Biden stands or whatever, like Jennifer Rubin has probably always been amenable to, you know, cosmopolitanism, but the, you know, 300,000 people who live in central Michigan or whatever, probably were not <laughs> amenable to cosmopolitanism, but were very much amenable to universal healthcare. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, so there is, so there is some interesting, evidence, and this is actually kind of tangentially related to a research project I was working on last year, um, that actually it's very much related, um, that, that basically there is, there is at least a correlation between um, sort of public attitudes regarding globalization. So not just immigration, things like uh, immigration, free trade. Um, th there is there's a correlation between that and kind of robustness of social welfare protections. So this isn't quite, I think, what you were talking about, about like the inequality and, and opinions on, on something like immigration, which I do think would be interesting to examine. But there, there does seem to be a, an inverse correlation where um, the weaker the kind of social welfare net, like safety net in a country is, um, the more negative kind of views people tend to have on these types of issues. I think where I, the way I interpret this is, well, I think this, this is a point where like economic anxiety is like, is and always was like an unhelpful, kind of label because 
it's there's a question of like yeah are people frustrated by their lack of opportunity by perceived inequality in society lack of upward mobility etc cetera, etc cetera. and then that is co-opted by populists um who especially on the right use rhetoric uh of, you know kind of anti-minority anti-outsider rhetoric that's kind of a staple of right-wing populism and then that kind of fuels this this uh anti-immigrant sentiment and, and i think that's like a plausible story and and i think it's probably both i think you probably have some of this sentiment already in the culture and then yeah. populists can exploit that um but the i think the way that it was construed was was like much more direct and naive in in that people were like oh these white working class americans are concerned that immigrants are stealing their jobs therefore they want to vote for trump and and i just don't think it's it's that kind of like one to one causality i think it's much more that the the back the background sort of situation that is kind of making them primed for this sort of like populist messaging is is like real stuff but it's stuff that the populist wants to distract from not actually tackle i mean right right like things like inequality things like lack of access to health care and child care like whatever else that's actually making working class people's lives miserable um and instead they want to pivot to like it's a much you know it's a much more potent political well, message that like this is immigrants fault yeah it is i mean i think i think it's something that's really important that is a little bit neglected i guess in sort of the way people people discuss these things is i think people also just contain multitudes they just have different views there just are a lot of people who are just they're not ideologically committed they have sort of very vague feelings just using common sense it's not shocking that there's a lot of people in all white communities who have views that are not particularly woke about racial issues but if you're talking about communities that are you know not super wealthy it's not shocking that they're also not in love with the idea of just large corporations being able to do whatever they want right um so i think yeah. it's that's that's an important piece that's missing to it um but yeah, i mean that's there's clearly there's something deep and somewhat intractable about the human psychology and the human brain that has to do with these issues because there would be no reason to it, it's it would be pretty irrational to vote on the basis I and mean, immigration i guess makes a little bit of sense but just really any cultural issue you're it's not a super rational thing for politics to be about and that's just like what politics is completely about in the western world so it's i don't know yeah this would be if this was a different type of podcast this would be like a, a great place to insert uh i mean marx carl schmidt um <laughs> like a few other theorists who, who have like I think they're, on, they're they're definitely onto something which i think our yeah. side our side definitely benefits when we talk about material 
issues. Yeah. And actually to that, or sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but there's a something that I wanted to bring to the record of this, uh, which it's a very simple chart. It's a tweet from this guy, David Shore, who's like a, I don't know how you describe him, just like a democratic stats type. Yeah, like a political, well, I want to say political analyst, but analyst has like a, not the connotation I mean, yeah, because he's a very mathy stats guy. But basically it's a chart that shows the vote share changes between 2012 and 2016. And it's vote share that the Democrat got. So Obama 2012, Hillary 2016. And then it's four different types of people, their opinion um, with their opinion on two questions. So it's their opinion of universal health care, thumbs up, thumbs down opinion of amnesty, thumbs up, thumbs down. So basically the shorthand of what we've been talking about here, universal healthcare, that's kind of a, where do you stand economically? Amnesty, where do you stand on these culture immigration type issues? And looking at it, you see people who support healthcare and amnesty and people who oppose both, just expectedly, those are, you know, liberal rules and conservatives. So that, you know, just voting Republican, they're voting Democrat, right? That, that's just pretty common sense. But the interesting thing you see is that Obama won a majority of people who support universal health care, but oppose amnesty. Whereas Trump won a majority of such people, a, a pretty dramatic swing, actually. And I think the, the stylized model in your mind of this should be Obama carrying Ohio, Iowa, and Michigan in 2012, and then Trump winning them by, not Michigan, but winning Ohio and Iowa by double digits in 2020, or oh, in 2016. Well, in 2016, he did win Michigan. He did, but not, I mean, it was very close. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, just not, it was not, in neither election, obviously wins very narrowly 2016, loses, I mean, modestly, but in the point being that just, States, or even a better example is probably a state like Maine, right? Where Obama wins Maine huge, like 15 points, 20 points, and then Hillary wins it by like five. Um, so I, I don't know, that's obviously a little convoluted, but I think it just, it, it really illustrates this point that uh, there are a lot of people who have differing views on these things. And in 2012, the election was Obamacare, healthcare was really the big theme of the election. Obama was, you know, it was, <laughs> are you voting with the workers? Are you voting with the boss? Kind of was like the theme, the general tenor of the election versus 2016. The theme of the election was definitely Trump is racist. Do you support that? Yes or no. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately there are a lot of people out there who give the right answer on the former and the wrong answer on the latter. So yeah, it's, yeah, it, that was an interesting visual. Um, I I wish we could, you know, like link that. Actually, I think we could link that tweet of his in the description for this podcast. Because, yeah, it, it's, oh, a good, uh, it's a good graph to look at or chart. Um, so I think, okay, so, so then let's, 
Okay, so I, I think we've done kind of a little bit of, you know, armchair philosophizing about, you know, some of the intrinsic motivations that, you know, right-wing voters who don't support immigration may or may not have. So I think it'd be good to pivot a little bit to talking about just some of the facts on the ground, uh, some of the, the numbers, you know, regarding the actual versus perceived costs of immigration. So the way I thought about doing this is talking about, you know, what, what did the data show and where is the academic research at with respect to two things? So first, you know, what are the, the actual labor market costs or disruptions from immigration? And then two, what are the political costs? Um, so, you know, in the first place, this is this one's this is like kind of a quick answer. Um, and I, I mean, the 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 long story short, which I loved that um, Noah Smith blog that you sent because he he had a great point where right off off the bat he was like, "You're not going to believe what I'm telling you because the, these these types of beliefs are are really deeply entrenched for a lot of people, um, and it's not something that just reading an econ paper or a half dozen econ papers is going to really ch like change. I, I mean, he, he cited as, as a very strong piece of support, you know, he was like, I, you know, the, the number of years it took even the, the economics profession to come around to seeing evidence that had been around for, I mean, at least going back to, to like David Card in, in 1990, um, all the evidence saying like, hey, immigration doesn't actually have these, these costs in terms of wages and employment for the native population. I mean, it took the economics profession years to come around to that. Same with minimum wage. Um, and like the work Aaron Dubé has done, like it's still <laughs> so hard to get economists to look at that, take it seriously. So kind of like we're, we're kind of SOL with regards to the general population. What, what's the question? Why? Because obviously with minimum wage, it's clear that there's just a lot of, particularly in the past, not so much now. I think I don't, I don't remember the most recent thing I've seen on polls of economists, but it's, it's just not true that a huge majority of economists are anti-minimum wage right now. I think a lot of them, see the data perhaps they probably they would have more skepticism than you or i but it's just not true that huge majority are anti-minimum wage or whatever totally um yeah no no i, I again yeah at, at this point today yeah if you surveyed the majority of economists which and and they've done these types of surveys you know uh like do you think the minimum wage is is on net good or bad like most will say it's good uh, if you ask them yeah. Do you think immigration is on net good or bad? You know, most of them will say it's good. Um, well, so I got a little distracted, but my point being with that, there was a bias of being anti-minimum wage on the basis of economics in the past. There was a lot of center-right muckers who used a supply and demand graph to be like, this proves that taxes should be low. But I, I guess I just don't have a sense of how immigration would fit into that as neatly 
I, I don't see the natural bias in favor of anti-immigration as I would of anti-minimum wage amongst economists specifically. So I'm just curious if you have any background on that as you kind of dive into the specifics of the statistical argument. In the modern yeah, world. I mean, that's, that's a really good question. And <clears throat> I think it's one I'm not like totally equipped to answer just because a lot of this was kind of inside baseball you know within the economics profession like yeah for sure before i was even you know before i even took my first econ course um basically i i think there's a couple of thoughts i have number one is is yeah i think that same problem that probably happened with the minimum wage stuff probably happened with immigration where especially say 30 years ago um there was a lot more reliance on sort of the 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 base kind of naive theory um which as you say like you just draw supply and demand curves on a chalkboard like you're you're not gonna you know in hindsight you're not gonna capture the reality of an issue as complex as immigration and, and that's not to say that that's you know exactly what the economics profession was doing but i do think there was probably more of a reliance on just like theoretical postulation about this absent yeah. data and we've been able to get like really good data on the subject in, in the last decades um i also think you know and this is kind of a meta feature of not just economics but i think a lot of the social sciences and just and maybe just a lot of academia in general which is that you know when you think about like the average age of an econ professor um they're like 50 something uh they got their phd you know 20 years ago 30 years ago a lot of them um and i think what happens there i mean there's there's sort of increasing levels of specialization that happens right like you you do your undergrad uh you go do your phd by the time you're getting to the end and you've written your dissertation you specialize in you know this this area that you're doing your dissertation on um you get hired hopefully you know as a professor and then you you kind of dive down even deeper and and the goal right the way you get tenure is be, is by being like the expert on this really niche topic like if you can be like, I know more about this topic than anyone alive, and and it's important. Um, you know, that's great. You've got tenure, man. Uh, you're getting published. You're getting tenure. Um, but unfortunately, then you you have a few people doing like really good groundbreaking work on stuff like minimum wage, immigration, and I think a lot of the times that knowledge is slow to diffuse because. Because yeah, again, a lot of people are just really siloed in their hyper-specific fields, and yeah. you know, professors are busy people. Like they like they don't have time to read papers about every single you know econ development that's happening. So a lot of the times, there's just a lag with that knowledge kind of yeah permeating everyone's consciousness and becoming accepted. So that's I think my take on that. Yeah, that does. I guess <laughs> to be a little um, annoying about it. 
I think the answer is probably neither of us know, but that it still doesn't quite like click in my mind why there would be such an inherent bias against immigration amongst economists in the past. Like, like I, I get what you're saying about the common sense changing, but just without no, with knowing like nothing other than the ambient facts of ec- economists of the seventies and eighties and minimum wage as a concept, it like my brain just can comprehend like, okay, they were shills against it, but it just doesn't, I don't see why there would be a reason for a Reagan advisor to be, I mean, maybe those people weren't specifically because obviously Reagan was pro-immigration, but um, I mean, who knows? It's, it's all very, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of different things at play, but we should, let's, let's dive into the, some of the, the data that you've compiled here that you can. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of good stuff here. And actually a few of the papers are from LSE folks, um, which is also dope. I mean, so basically, okay. Like, like one really good one. Uh, this is from professor Alan Manning and co-authors. Um, they basically analyzed 30 years of UK data on wages and they, they basically failed to find any, you know, effect of, you know, immigrants into the UK. And especially you think about this period from like 1970 to 2000, this is associated with, you know, kind of joining the EU and a huge kind of opening of borders with Europe. So um, they basically showed, yeah, there's, there's no, um, there's no kind of effect on native wages. And, and one of the reasons that they've postulated and that others have postulated is that, you know, like native workers and foreign workers are not perfect substitutes in a lot of ways. Um, Cause I think that's, that's, I think to, to return to your earlier point, like that's, I think a big assumption that has kind of, it's, it's an intuitively appealing assumption, which is that like, okay, I have like this one job here and like, here's an American worker that would show up and, and take this job. Or here's a Mexican worker who, you know, I think like I could pay for cheaper, you know, or, or something. Um, and the idea is that like, I'm an employer. These are equally good to me. And, and like point of fact, that's, that's not actually true in a lot of cases. Um, so, so that was really, and they also found, and this has also been found by other authors, which is like, <laughs> the, in terms of wages, the person who loses the most from immigration is the immigrants. Like they take a huge uh, decrease to their pay, you know, relative to like their expertise, their education levels, et cetera. Um, yeah. Well, and isn't another element of it, I, I don't know if this has held up in a robust manner, but my understanding is that recent low skilled immigrants face the most competition from future low skilled immigrants like a per a, a low skilled mexican day laborer who's been here for two years is most at risk of being or is the most vulnerable to a low skilled mexican laborer coming tomorrow mm-hmm. for, versus government affairs professionals are just not really at risk of uh, low skill immigration. I don't know if that's no. You're you're spot on. Um, there's there's another paper, 
um, by uh, Ottavino, um, who was at LSE. Uh, but basically they found, yeah. So um, they looked at US wages um, from 1990 to 2006. Um, so they basically found the immigration had a small effect on a small uh, positive effect on the wages of native workers with no high school degrees. So like between a half and like one and a half percent, small positive effect on average of about a half percent. We can talk about why that is, but it actually, the, the biggest thing was it had a, a, a negative 6.7% effect on wages of previous immigrants. So yeah, you're, you're spot on. Like when new immigrants come in, the, the people they are competing with is frequently, you know, already established yeah. immigrants. And like, those are the losers, quote unquote, in terms of like wages, wage competition. Um, and, and this dynamic actually brings up two phenomena that I think pop up often in economics and politics. First being generally about immigration, the lump of labor fallacy, mm. which mm-hmm relates vaguely to what you're describing where if you envision a world where there's a fixed number of jobs then yes it would be necessarily bad for workers if there were additional workers and no jobs however if you're adding people to the country you're also essentially definitionally adding jobs as well unless unless there was some reason that the gdp on average was just crumbling as a result of you adding these people, which you know you, you just described, there's robust statistical evidence that that's just specifically not happening. Actually, the opposite is happening. I'm sure we'll kind of get into it for a variety of reasons in terms of, right. I know a lot of age and like reducing the age of the population is a worthwhile thing for long-term growth, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Immigrants um, have higher birth rates. That's good for long-term growth. Yeah, et cetera. So, or, so the, the lump of labor thing. And then the second one is, so uh, I know this is kind of my calling card, but it's sort of the thing with inflation. So let's say even in a world where immigration did specifically reduce non-high school, like American native born citizens without a high school degree marginally reduce their wages, cutting up, that's just so not the most direct way to address that problem. Like non-high school educated workers are just suffering severely just in general and like reducing immigration is just so not how we would want to be helping those people. Yeah. It would be a problem if inflation crept up slightly, but having wide scale unemployment for several years to address it is just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the type of thing where, I mean, to be honest, I I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's just like the way, the reason that type of stuff gets harped on because, because you're right. It's like, that's okay. It seems like maybe we're blowing this out of proportion. It's I think just because honestly, it's, it's like a, a good political message for the right wing. Uh, and like, do they actually care about native non-high school degree, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, mm, no, I don't think so. You're not doing anything about it. <laughs> yeah. So 
which which I think I think so then that's actually a good segue into the other side of this kind of coin, which is which and, and again, you know, I have I have other papers in the list on the effects on wages and employment. And suffice to say, the the body of economic literature is is like pretty clear on this point that there just are not persistent um, or severe or even any, in most cases, uh, negative effects on native wages, you know, in any group. Uh, yeah, it's or yeah. Um, but this is the second, the second side of this is like, okay, but, you know, we've talked about Trump, we've talked about, you know, Reagan, Clinton, the extent to which immigration has factored into their messaging and their campaigning. And this is something where I am a little bit more pessimistic, I guess I would say, um, just about the extent to which immigration can have negative repercussions in terms of the rise of right-wing populists. Um, So there's a few papers that I found here as well. One that I read a while ago, actually a couple of these I read a while ago. Um, One that did, they ran in a kind of a, well, not an experiment, but they, they looked at um, asylum seekers going into uh, Switzerland and the different effects there. And they, they did find that that did shift voters towards kind of center right and right wing parties. Um, Though not the most right wing kind of like inflammatory anti-immigrant um, parties and and another one and that one was by some economists in Switzerland I don't know their names um, then another one by Cavale and Forwerda that you know basically they looked at EU data and their findings indicated that anti-immigrant parties so think like UKIP in the UK or um the National Front, yeah, yeah, um, are, are really highly responsive to the thing that they found that was super salient is that support for those parties is really highly responsive to perceived scarcity of government benefits due to immigrants. So think about like how much the right wing in the UK has has hammered on like immigrants are using the NHS, you know, like that's your health care immigrants are using it but they're not paying into it right like they're paying taxes to the continent to you know poland or greece or wherever and they're using your benefits um and so they they found that that had a a big corresponding increase in support for these anti-immigrant parties so that type of stuff i and i don't really know how to resolve that because you know there's, there's other papers in the literature that find kind of similar things in different places. And it's like, we obviously don't want reactionary right-wing populists becoming more popular, (laughs) (laughs) but we also don't want to, you know, have to, I mean, it would be ridiculous to like preemptively then like ban all immigration and like play into what they want anyway, just to like prevent them from gaining power or something. So I don't really know how to resolve that tension. Yeah, it actually, it makes me think of something where 
if you take seriously that these type of developments impact politics, Trump almost assuredly would have lost in 2016 had it not been for the Syrian refugee crisis being maybe the biggest international news story of that year. If you take seriously that this would have an impact in the context of an election that he won by less than a point or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's just like an interesting aside, but yeah, I mean, maybe the best way to think of it is that <laughs> short long-term economic benefits of immigration, high short-term political costs, pretty high, but unknown. They at least exist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, un- long-term unknown unless we just become England in which case the Tories just win election after election, after election, after election. Yeah. Improbably despite all odds. Despite all odds. I I think, I think the thing that gives me like hope, maybe not, maybe hope is, is a wrong word, but you know, I think that some of that research that I talked about earlier, you know, that actually it seems like, some of this reactionary sentiment decreases when you just, you know, provide like welfare, like basic welfare benefits to people. Um, I mean, this is, this is a thing that, you know, populism can only really thrive when there's already a lot of frustration, dissatisfaction, etc. that's pent up in the voting population. So, I think if you can alleviate some of that stress and some of that just generalized resentment that doesn't yet have an outlet, um, then I, I think you can overcome some of those, those short-term potential political costs, but. Yeah, it's a tough nut to crack. Um, yeah. But as is life. Uh, yeah, such is life. I think, I think the, uh, I think something we can both agree on is that for our side to win politically, despite it, it, it's a potentially a little uncouth to say, but definitely plays into our advantages to avoid hot button issues of identity and resentment that are very prevalent in white communities throughout our country. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Focusing on the focusing on the fact that, well, the the other side will lie and say that immigrants are stealing their benefits. We can tell the truth and say that it's actually the Republicans who are trying to steal their benefits. So yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Like if, if their benefits aren't getting stolen and they aren't getting economically trampled in the first place, they won't care about messages that like immigrants are stealing your shit. <laughs> Something like I'm fine. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that's basically, you know, we never have enough time to like, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours about like any one of these sub points or, but I, I guess that's but, as, as good a place to wrap up uh, the, the populist stuff. Um, one, one just yeah. random shout out I would give is to um, Danny Roderick, who's an economist at uh, Harvard 
that I'm a big fan of. He has he has done, I would say, some of the best work on kind of assessing some of this some of these political costs of globalization, you know, immigration, trade. I think it was kind of interesting. There was there was sort of a pendulum swing where you know, I think I think you had like the the end of the 20th century like big kind of neoliberal wave of of economists who were like trade is always good. Immigration is always good. Uh, and he kind of has been a voice of I guess restraint being like it's good but there are costs and i think um that nicely sums up my own position on it um yeah so yeah anyone who wants to learn more about that read danny roderick and critical for understanding politics which more people should do um well, should we pivot over to our uh weekly dunk we'll keep it short but some good, some some uh, some sweet sugar coming in here. You want to intro this one? Yeah, for sure. So today's reading series, we've got a beautiful one, uh, courtesy of Daniel Henninger. He's a conservative columnist who writes weekly for the uh, Wall Street Journal. So you know he's putting out some of the best thoughts that anyone could ever really have. Um, he's formerly a Fox News commentator, just like kind of token, basically just like random, like asshole, like 60 year old white guy who's just like really pissed off. I mean, that's just kind of not, that's kind of par for the course. But uh, I was really drawn into this title, which is Democrats are killing the American dream, subhead. Joe Biden's family plan, family's plan replaces individuals striving with middle-class entitlements. So, you know, there's a lot, going on there. It's a very strong claim, um, especially considering many on the left obviously think Biden is <laughs> kind of a moderate. I think he won part on that basis of just being Uncle Joe. He's he's the guy. He was Obama's right-hand man. Like he's, he's a chiller. Um, but basically, uh, the article really just gives a sort of Republican slash conservative horror scenario of what would happen if we were to implement the good, but would be, would basically turn us into just a sort of standard issue Western democracy in terms of level of welfare state and, and all that stuff and how that would completely destroy America and everything and everything that it stands for. Um, I don't know. Do you have any other opening how else yeah, would that's, you? No, that's spot on. That's what this is about. <laughs> just it's that genre of take of just sort of like, ah, like if we were to raise taxes and not have your job, your life, your entire livelihood dependent on a job, that would be terrible, right? Question mark. Yes. <laughs> um so um I think we can maybe dive in with a couple of, of comments before we or sorry, not comments, a couple of quotes before we, uh, you know, talk about it any further. But um, so what we have here, the best uh, first quote here is 
The transition began in March when Democrats enacted a federal unemployment insurance bonus of $300. That bonus, pushing benefits past market market wage rates, indisputably is causing many to shun previously held jobs, which surely will do long-term damage to the notion of hard work to get ahead. So the first thing is, I... Any economist who is at all good at economics would say you can't possibly verify. There's no way to verify that claim until several years from now. It's just not possible to to use one jobs report as the entire basis of your claim that that the labor force participation rate is like crushed low as a result of this. (laughs) And actually, and and you're you're totally right that like the data needs to kind of accumulate, but um, I did see one, and I'm not gonna remember who it was, it was some economist I follow on Twitter, like one very preliminary kind of analysis, maybe a couple months ago, of just kind of that first year of extended UI. Um, He was like, yep, no labor participation issues. So like empirically, this is just incredibly dubious. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just, it's sort of like the, you know, it's the like, it's it's the classic Republic axiom of something like, well, if you ran it like a business, like the government would be moving on all cylinders. Like, and you think if you use any sort of common sense, you're like, that actually does not make any sense. A business exists to profit. A government exists to maintain the national interest. Um, um, you know, one is traded on the stock market. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all sorts of just sort of common sense things, but I, I just love it. I think they, once the picture, all it took was like three pictures on Twitter of a sign that was like, help wanted, will pay $10 an hour. And then some guy being like, no one will work at my Arby's. Like the world is ending for these guys to just like, you know, hit the, hit the trenches to, to push this narrative out. Yeah. And that's okay. That's that's like a good perspective that shows up in this other quote, which is <clears throat> um, okay. So he goes, uh, all right. So he's talking about like the Medicare for all push, and he says Medicaid is minimalist, bare bones healthcare for the poor because of its scale and cost. It is necessarily lowest common denominator healthcare. When Joe Biden and the Democrats demand quote equity unquote everywhere. <laughs> They're proposing a lowest common denominator society. And then further down, he says, Mr. Biden himself made this proposition clear in an interview Monday, uh, where he said that after 400 years, black Americans remain, quote, far behind the eight ball in terms of education, health, in terms of opportunity, end quote. If the American Families Plan passes, we'll all be behind the same federal dependency eight ball. (laughs) I love, this is, I love that that <laughs> it's it's like the job he got handed for the editor was like just like remind Americans they don't want to live the lives of like poor Americans or Black Americans like that's that's all he's yeah. saying implicit in this is just like hey you, you middle class reader yeah. of the Wall Street Journal wouldn't you hate to experience the reality of poor Americans it's like. Sir, you will become black if you have your child care subsidized by the government. Like, I think this is so telling that, like, the fear mongering that's happening is that, like, the destruction of the American dream would be 
this quote lowest common denominator society he's basically saying like, like if you had to experience what poor people and what black americans have to experience society would crumble it's like let's put this tax status quo to like 2011 and raise it like eight percent or something above that overall like it's not yeah it's not like a huge change like even even if you thought there was real risk of like dramatically changing society like this just would not this just would not have that kind of a risk (laughs) well and i like sorry go ahead it's just yeah no it's just really funny i mean that quote also is just funny to the way biden just like that is a very biden quote like they're behind the eight ball man come on yeah. man. <laughs> yeah that is well it's it's just like and also i know we've we've already i, I don't want to like annoyingly name drop more political theory that we're not really going to discuss on the pod but like i this this man needs to read john rawls like like if 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 saying, if, if this quote, lowest common denominator position in society is like an effective scare tactic for people, like you need to re-examine your society, man. Like that's that's not a just society when you can, I, when, when the, it, like the threat of having to live the way the lowest members of society do is like persuasive. Your society's not doing well. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and I don't even know what he's doing at this, with this end bit because you have Biden saying black Americans are behind the eight ball. And then he says, he doesn't, he doesn't refute that. He just is like, and wouldn't it be awful if we were all behind that eight ball? And I'm like, wait, so you're okay with, <laughs> are you saying you're okay with black Americans being oh, there? But like, you don't, you don't want to be there. I, I actually have to add, I should have included this in, but the next line of it is generation generations of similar welfare compensation eroded the American dream for many black Americans by disincentivizing upward mobility. Hundreds of thousands still live in public housing units built for them in the sixties. The unions whose teachers refuse to return to inner city schools will run childcare. So I love this because I, I don't know why, but for some reason conservatives have convinced themselves that like, people will agree with them that teachers unions are bad and like blame them for COVID or something weird, but it's like such a concerted effort that it's just not worked at all. Like it's just like a huge weird thing of conservatives just amping about teachers unions and like in-person learning a lot. It's like, dude, there's just, there, it's going to be in-person learning soon. Like just there, it will be in-person learning again. Um, I, this, this paragraph is also hilarious from from like a, an argumentative perspective because he's the the mini thesis here is that welfare has eroded the american dream for black americans and then he proceeds yes, to give examples well no but then he proceeds to give examples of like welfare not being applied enough he's like public housing is like from the 1960s yeah maybe we should have built more public housing I, I don't know how that's not like a rebuttal to your own argument. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. On that to two very basic things. So the first thing is like, you just like, Oh, type in like, what was like the black poverty rate pre-welfare? Like based on what this guy says, I'm assuming it was zero. And like, 
it was really good. And then you're like, oh shit, actually, no, it was terrible. Like this, this made things better. And then the public housing thing, dude, you think that the low, the, the low income people being crushed by high housing prices in urban areas who are very disproportionately people of color, including black people, you think they're suffering because of there's too many public housing or is it probably because we don't adequately fund housing subsidies so that the vast majority of low income people have to spend a third of their income on housing. Yeah. Who, who could ever know that one? Like, yeah. I, this, this whole thing is a mess. He's like too much welfare, but also not enough public housing and also not enough childcare in inner cities. I'm like, what, what do you want, man? Make it be run by the teachers unions. The teachers yeah. unions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not That's the teachers unions. teachers unions. That's who would be running childcare the teachers unions. Yeah, I love that. Like any sane person would be like, oh, maybe we should like have someone who's not already an underpaid, overworked public school teacher, like handle childcare. And he's like, make them do the childcare. <laughs> Fuck the unions. <laughs> Actually, I, I this would be a good note to sign off on. I saw this tweet the other day that was like, hundred billion dollars startup startup idea. We need the solution for childcare. Like there could easily be a bootstrap finance. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think it was what like either Matt Bruning or like one of the like someone was just like so the, he was like, so this guy's actually invented something called the welfare state. <laughs> um, <laughs> Too good. <laughs> Because and and he, and he just responded. And he was like, "Dude, just a privatized system is just not going to work because it chronically, un, even if you chronically underpay and overwork the childcare providers, most people don't have enough money to even afford that. So it just does not work. So it's like a, a bootstrap financed whatever, whatever the fuck. The Every exact- time." That was that some like VC talking head on Twitter. Yeah, well, it's like a VC like crypto guy dude i seriously i don't get what's going on with i'm telling you man like people <laughs> I, I everyone who thinks that private investment in this country is like allocated hyper efficiently by like the <laughs> smartest minds in the world need to just go look at vc twitter it is yeah, just talk to these people dumpster fire of just stupidity <laughs> it's so bad dude, it's my man really just said, "I'm gonna start a, a, a like I'm gonna start an app that takes care of childcare, bro." What? My favorite, my favorite, like Hall of Fame, just <laughs> awful VC take was, was some mucker with like with like two hundred thousand followers or something like that. <laughs> he tweeted something about like, "I believe it will only take ten to twelve great entrepreneurs to solve climate change," and I was like. Oh, bro, you, I, I just don't even know what to say to that. Like, where do you begin? We have the technology to solve climate change. I, it's mostly a matter of political will at this point. Have you been living under a rock? Like, I guess you know theoretically, anything? if in the future, 10, there are in like 185 years, 10 people do like insane things that make it much easier. You could make some sort of weird argument or something, but I have a suspicion that's not what he was thinking of. Dude, they just love this narrative of like the silver bullet, like invention and like some offbeat entrepreneur that's just going to like do a magic trick and like make our world fixed. And I, I just like, don't, 
I can't even begin to fathom like what, how they view the world. Like if that is your framework for how you view change and like fixing society's issues, I just don't even know where to begin with that. I think that's a good place to cut it off. So (laughs) yeah. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week on junior walks.